This is Two Guys in a River. I'm Steve Mathewson. And I'm Dave Getz. We're two lifelong friends who love fly fishing for trout. Our podcast is all about helping you catch more fish and deepening your love of the time you spend on the river. We are Two Guys in a River. For the love of fly fishing. Recently, Dave and I spent a great evening with the Trout Unlimited Lee Wolf chapter in Carpentersville, Illinois. They asked us to talk about some of our great fly fishing memories and why we love fly fishing. And we recorded that conversation, and we're going to share a bit of that with you today. One of the great things about Trout Unlimited and the chapters is the community, the sense of community. And we really felt that this evening. You got the sense that this group of folks that that gather together really like each other and and they're on mission together they do all sorts of projects and the tu is probably one of the most effective networks that exist today when you think about all the good that they do and good they put into the world it really is amazing oh it is and uh, they were terrific people we had a terrific time with them. so generous yeah so here's some of our unfiltered ramblings Uh, The audio might be patchy in a few places, but we think this might help you think about some of your great fly fishing memories and why you love fly fishing. So here we go. Uh, Dave and I live at the TU Lee Wolf chapter. Hey, thanks so much for having us. What we're going to do, I think Dennis had asked us uh, maybe to introduce ourselves, talk a little bit about the podcast, and then uh, we thought we might just share a few of our kind of favorite fly fishing memories and uh, maybe what we want to get at tonight is uh, why do we love fly fishing? Again, you, you know, we could talk about gear and techniques and in our senses you probably do a lot of that, but uh, this is probably our, our niche is, is just, you know, topics like this. So, uh, yeah, I'm Steve Mathewson. And I'm Dave Getz. And our podcast is uh, Two Guys in a River. So, uh, let's talk a little bit about that. Dave, tell them about the, the podcast, what in the world we're doing. So we started about almost four years ago. It'll be June 1st. It'll be four years. We've done about 186 episodes, so we do one episode a week. So we're grinding, and we have never missed a week. And, so and one we, written piece as well. So we also one episode, do one written one piece written on piece. our website. Yeah. So we're actually doing two fresh pieces of content uh, every week and both Steve and I have day jobs so we're not trying to make money or build a we're side hustle. We're losing money. Yeah. yeah yeah I think about all the all the time we've spent and it's money we've invested. Yeah, yeah it's totally yeah. a it's not even a jobby it's like a, yeah. it's well it's a hobby you pay money to to do things you really love to do. Yeah. So I own a marketing agency and we work with tech companies and financial services companies and a few nonprofits and I started the business in 2000 so that's what I do generally so building a podcast and doing what we do is it comes second second nature I should say to me because that's what we do for clients that type of thing so what about you, Steve? So what do you yeah, do? Yeah, so I'm, I'm a pastor uh, up in Libertyville uh, after uh, 20 years in Montana. Uh, never thought I'd move back to the Midwest. I, I grew up near Peoria and uh, migrated west, just loved it, uh, fly fished, you know, hunted elk, and uh, I never thought I'd come back, but uh, I've been back here for about 
uh, 12 years. But uh, Dave and I actually met in, in Montana, fall of 1980. We were at a small uh, Christian college, central Montana. And, and here's a picture of us in Portland. Uh, you know, we've changed a little bit. You know, like you have. Yeah, this is. I have uh, not changed. Come on. Uh, that's right. Yeah, this is this is 1983. 1983. And, uh, my the, goodness. And the, the woman in the middle is my wife now. So uh, that's, sure she is. That's yeah. good. Yeah. So, so I think why we're why we are laughing in that picture is because I am probably standing on my tiptoes, because Pris, Steve's wife, is my height. And we always used to have this running joke, who was taller? She'd call me little man, and we would go back and forth. So I'm almost yeah. sure that I'm standing on my tiptoes. I think you are. Which yeah. is why I have that kind of Cheshire cat grin on my face. Yeah. So, And she's just like, oh, brother. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, this is Bozeman Airport uh, sitting in front of the Buffalo. We had time to kill. So I didn't get to talk about the podcast. Yeah, so tell us about the podcast. We do, yeah. uh, we, we've been doing it for almost four years. It's a weekly podcast. Today we have around 7,000 subscribers. We have about somewhere between 12 and 15,000 unique downloads a month. People who come to the podcast, listen, a unique download is kind of how you measure podcasts. So we're not big. We're not aspiring to be big. It's probably bigger than what we ever aspire yeah. to since mm -hmm. this is not what we set out to do so the whole vision for the podcast was to do something that is not a expert podcast right or an industry podcast so today some of the great podcasts are like well let's talk about the orvis fly fishing guide podcast with todd rosenbauer that is just a terrific terrific podcast but it's produced by orvis right they're trying to sell you stuff now it's a great podcast but it's it's part of a brand you probably have heard of april Voki of anchored another terrific podcast terrific uh, she does a really great job but she's trying to build a personality and a brand inside the industry and that's really important and but it's not something we aspire to yeah we're really from the other side aren't we yeah we, we call it the far side which yeah, is yeah, the normal right. average yeah fly fisher who probably fishes less we fish about 20 days a year half of those might be together the other half are either alone or with our my brother or my kids steve has a son in denver so we the podcast was all positioned to be for normal people who don't have a shtick you understand what i'm saying so it's not like we thought the market was wanting for this but it's just something mm -hmm. we wanted to do and it just kind of took off. So it's kind of a creative outlet. We, yeah, it's a you know, creative we, art we love to tell stories. We like to talk fly fishing. We, uh, and we both like to write. And so it's, uh, you know, we, we just thought, well, if, if we can let some others in on this and if people enjoy, you know, listening to it and, and sometimes maybe learning a little bit about fly fishing. But like Dave said, we don't position ourselves as, as experts, but sometimes we feel like we can break it down for uh, new fly fishers and we've actually got a lot of great response from people that have uh, both men and women you know who have decided to try you know fly fishing and and so that's you know that's really gratifying because I, I know that's that's just an issue as you think about the future of uh you know of our sport i love to see you know more people get involved as long as they don't fish you know in our spots yeah, right exactly right? as yeah. long as they don't come to our river they're fine yeah that's right uh, we do have a book. 
Uh, tell them about the book. So Steve and I collaborated on this book. So it's called The Fly Fisher's Book of Lists. You can find it on Amazon. It's just a book of lists. That's exactly what it is. So we've come up with all these lists through the years of things, 10 ways to do this. It started out with Steve's article called The Ten Commandments of Waiting, which has probably been the most read article on our website. And because of that, we thought, why don't we, we have all these other lists. Why don't we just create a book of lists? Mm -hmm. So that's all it is. So we published that a couple of years ago. You can find it on Amazon if, if that interests you. If not, don't buy it. You can see there's no hard sell here. So what we thought we'd do is just to talk a little bit about our, our experience, our journey with fly fishing. And, and sometimes when you hear somebody else's story, it's not that ours is, is dramatic or, or stunning, or the, you know, the stuff for a bestseller. But uh, sometimes when, when you hear somebody's story, and we've had this happen too, we hear somebody else that, you know, there may be something we pick up or learn, or it just reminds us of something we've forgotten about our story. So... Dave, how did you get into fly fishing in the first place? Well, I have Steve to blame. <laughs> so as I look back over my journey, I started fly fishing at 18 when I met Steve. Now, Steve could not be my mentor because he was too competitive with me. I mean, you see You're how well... You're going to say too bad. Yeah, yeah. Too bad you see how great fisher, I looked yeah. back then, and yeah. so he just couldn't compete. So actually, I, as I think about my journey of fly fishing, there were what I call inspirational moments. And one was Steve. He got me on the journey. I grew up in North and South Dakota, hunted, fished, walleye, northern. My family owns land in North Central South Dakota. And so I hunted my entire life. In fact, hunting has probably been one of the dominant things, waterfowl and, and pheasant hunting. I go back every year with my boys and have done so since they were three or four years old. But as I look back through my journey, there was these moments that kind of launched me into a different type of fly fishing. For example, Steve kind of got me fishing those big attractor patterns. And for probably almost 10 years, it didn't matter the stream, it didn't matter the time of year, I had about three flies and that was all I knew. And so I was just throwing whatever. And I caught a lot of fish in the West. I lived in Colorado and Montana at, during those years. And then there was this moment in late eight, it was actually the early 90s. I was elk hunting in Western Colorado, and it was a really two or three days of hard hunting. We, cut, we, sh we shot nothing. We called it rock climbing with rifles because it was, that's all mm -hmm. we did. And so on the way back, my friend who was this great athlete says, hey, I got a couple fly rods in the back. Let's hit the roaring fork. And so we hit the roaring fork, and he handed me a rod with a nymph rig with some weights, a strike indicator. I'd never fished with nymphs. I'd only fished with dry flies. And it was windy, blowing, and about my second cast, that thing was so tangled. And he looked at me, because I had been bragging about what kind of a fly fisher I was. And he looked at me, and I just saw him think, <clears throat> you could just see his wheels spinning going, hmm, really? Um, not impressed. So that was a moment where I go, oh, there's, there's nymph fishing. I should learn. So it took me 10 years or so, and I was mostly a self-learner. And then there was this another moment with a friend named Mark Galley who heard about my fly fishing because of my bragging and stuff. And he said, hey, I want to do that. So we started going to the Driftless. At that point, I had moved to Chicago in 1992 from Colorado. And so we started doing these trips. Well, quickly, he outran me when it came to fly fishing. And so he started going deeper into nymphs and streamers, and so I followed him. And so my journey kind of just has been incrementally. You start out dry fly fishing, then nymph fishing, then streamers, and then recently I've picked up Euro nymphing. 
I put that in quotes because I'm still a newbie in Euronymphing. And, but my journey has really been incremental and really driven by these inspirational moments, mostly by people who are pushing me uh, to do more. So Steve, you've really had a lot of mentors growing up fly fishing. Yeah, I guess I did. I should point out though, you, you learn pretty well. Uh, this, is, uh, this is Dave, uh, what, about a year ago on the, the Madison, just outside of Yellowstone Park, just fishing for some of those runners that come up from Hebgen. And I've caught my share of, of some really nice fish in the Madison, <laughs> uh, like this one. Very nice. So That's that about was a, Steve's size. That, that was a good day. But, <laughs> but th this is what we really try to go after uh, just some of the, in, in the spring. We, we love fishing. The, it's called the bear trap uh, in, in the Madison. It'd be kind of the, well, the, the water comes out. You've got the upper Madison. It runs into Ennis Lake and then down through the bear trap canyon and uh, kind of at the mouth of that, we, we hike up and fish that. And By the way, uh, I just want to add, I think a lot of people fish Montana in the summertime, which is really the worst time to fish it. And if you can fish in the spring, late March, first couple weeks of April, before the before the yeah. uh, for the runoff where the rivers right. pull out, man, that's great. And also, Steve and I have fished a lot in September and October. Mm -hmm. So many people just all they can do is think about going in the fall or in the summer. And there's some great hatches out there, but man, today it's so crowded that it, to me it's just not worth it. Well, and one of the big hatches in the summer there is the inner tube hatch, and uh, <laughs> there's a stretch where. Uh, it's kind of impressive to stand and watch it from a bridge. You know, there's, you see 50 people in inner tubes coming by and, and coolers, and, and it looks kind of fun. Yeah. But some of them are oblivious to the fact that there are a lot of rattlesnakes uh, along the, the banks. And I remember, you know, one year, you don't always kill rattlesnakes, but my son and I were out shooting uh, you know, clay pigeons along the Madison, and, and it was too really too hot to fish. It was, I think it was in July, and so... Uh, we we actually uh, kind of encountered a couple rattlesnakes, and I let him you know shoot one. Okay, there, there's your one for your your life, and and you know a few yards away there are people walking in, in flip flops and uh, you know bathing suits, and totally oblivious. So yeah, <laughs> yeah that that's that's what you get. Um, yeah, I guess in terms of of some of my mentors, when I. You know, I grew up in central Illinois, I grew up near Peoria, but we spent a lot of time in, in the west in the summer, Wyoming, uh, Colorado, Montana, and, and my dad was from uh, Pennsylvania, you know, grew up, uh, he, you know, he took us fishing, but we were really hunters, you know, I had a shotgun when I was 10 years old, and, and uh, you know, a deer rifle a couple years uh, later, and so we go back to Pennsylvania and hunt. We, we hunted in, in Illinois, shotgun and slugs, and so actually we did a lot more uh, hunting. But uh, every year when we'd go out to Rocky Mountain National Park in, in Colorado, we'd camp at Moraine Park. I know some of you might be familiar with that. Uh, there was a, a ranger from Texas, Jerry Williams was his name, who did a fly fishing demonstration or, or a fishing demonstration every week. And uh, he was a fly fisher, and uh, he'd, you know, we'd, we'd sit in this amphitheater, you know, where they do the campfire programs, and he'd do like an hour. And then he'd take us down over the bank to the Big Thompson River, and there were a lot of beaver ponds, and, and he would always catch a fish, you know, an eight-inch brook trout. And uh, 
uh, wow, I, I just, I was kind of mesmerized with, with fly fishing. And so my brother and I, we were, you know, we were, I was like a freshman in high school. I think he was a seventh grader at that point. Uh, we pooled our money and bought a, uh, a fly rod. It was a De Iowa uh, fiberglass back in the day. I think the, uh, you know, the, the, the reel cost as much as the, the fly rod. And I think the fly line was a, about the same price. I think we probably paid 30 bucks for all of it. And, you know, just kind of, uh, it's like Dave said, it was just kind of incremental. And, and for years, uh, I now think I've arrived at mediocre fly fisher. You know, for years I was just a bad fly fisher. And, and I would still do spin casting. But I remember, uh, you know, getting a couple of Fenwick blanks that I bought at the Cabela's store in uh, Nebraska when there was only, you know, one or two, and and uh, made a couple of uh, fly rods and, and kept at it. And then when I moved to uh, Montana, uh, that's when I really uh, finally, you know, got serious about fly fishing and ran into some good uh, people. There was a, a guy by the name of Bob Granger who... Yeah, he ended up working a lot for Ted Turner, tied all of Turner's flies and, and took people out in his, uh, in his drift boat. And, and it was funny because, I mean, Bob is just so unassuming and he's just a, he's just a country boy. I mean, what else can I say? But I said one time, you know, who are some of the people you've had in your boat? And he says, well, you know, Ted and Jane and Jimmy Carter and uh, Mikhail Gorbachev and Hank Aaron and I said, wow. I said, what kind of a fly fisher was Hank Aaron? And he says, well, he was a lot better baseball player. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I I picked up a lot from him. And the reason I met him is I took a a fly tying class at at an Orvis shop in Bozeman. The Orvis shop had just opened. and, And I wanted to learn fly tying, which I did. But that opened up a whole new world. I started to learn about entomology, started to learn, uh, uh, you know, all the stuff that you really need to know uh, about fly fishing and, and you know, bought an Orvis rod and, and things just kind of took off from there. And, you know, I, my, my folks lived in Paradise Valley, uh, which is south of Livingston. I don't know if some of you are familiar with Nelson Spring Creek or not. Uh, I worked for the Nelsons off and on one summer and... And, and eventually uh, got to fish there uh, a little bit after I, I knew what I was doing. And so kind of all those things, like Dave said, it's just, you know, it's just picking up a little bit here and there. And I, I think even doing the podcast, we've just run into, it wasn't our intention. I mean, we knew we'd learned something, but we've run into a lot of great people who have uh, taught us a, a lot of things. So that's, uh, yeah, that's kind of our I guess that's kind of our journey. So you got to tell the story that Jerry Williams would tell that ranger about the kid who caught that brown. Oh yeah, yeah. Jerry Williams was a a good fly fisher, fly tire, and he he was uh, the 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 big Thompson River comes down through this glacial moraine. They call it Moraine Park, and there were a lot of beaver dams. And he said he was after this big brown trout that, that he had seen, and he would go down sometimes you know, late at night and strip a streamer. He would go down later in the day and, you know, he kind of knew where this thing hung out and, you know, undercut bank and he'd drift a fly by it. Just, you know, he says, one time he got a strike and missed it. Well, uh, one evening he's heading out there and here comes like like a 10-year-old boy 
holding this big trout, and he had a Budweiser plug on his spinning rod. In, in fact, if you want to know what he caught it on, and I don't know if there's one of these in the women's restroom, but in the men's restroom, there's a beautiful picture of a rainbow trout, and then you get close, and there's this big, long uh, plug with two uh, treble hooks on it. And, and I think it's like, that's, what's wrong with this picture? Yeah, that's what the, the kid used. And I remember Jerry Williams, too. This is back in the day when, you know, there, there wasn't as much catch and release, and, and, and somebody said, what's, what's the best way to, to fix a... You know, I caught a brown trout. What's the best way to fix a brown trout? And, and Jerry Williams, who lived in Texas, he was a college professor, said, well, I, I kind of like catfish and hush puppies, he said. But, and he says, and brown trout, they're not the best eating. They're kind of mushier compared to a brookie or a rainbow, he said. But here's the best recipe I've ever come up with. He said, you, you take that, you preheat the oven to 350, you put the brown trout on a pine board, put it in, bake it for 20 minutes, pull it out, throw the trout away and eat the pine board he said that's that's the that, that's about the best recipe that you'll get and you've never heard that one before no, that's, that's right so we uh we, we still love the west i i lived in the bozeman area for uh 20 i don't know for about 15 years there lived in helena for about five so i was i was close to missouri i would say the first 10 years though uh, I, I spent so much time hunting, I, I thought the other day, why didn't I do more fall fishing? And I realized, well, we started bow hunting on Labor Day. Loved to bow hunt for elk, and, and uh, so that would usually, uh, you know, take about a, a month, and then, you know, and then a couple weeks, and then rifle season opened, and we, we loved hunting whitetail. A lot of whitetail there, and nobody in Montana really knew what they were doing. They're, they're different than mule deer, and you can't just take your dog out and, you know, drive out in the field and, you know, shoot one. You have to be a little cagier. So we did that. We, we hunted elk. And, uh, uh, yeah, but it was, uh, it was just a great place to live and to fish. So uh, now that we've moved here, Dave and I go back to Montana at least once a year. We, we've done that for the last decade. And uh, we also fish the Driftless, like I'm sure many of you do. Uh, the Wisconsin Driftless seems to get a lot of pressure, so we've been going over into Minnesota uh, just a little bit further. Uh, same kind of water, but it seems like everybody's out on uh, lakes, you know, trying to catch, uh, you know, walleye. And so, uh, I don't know, we found maybe just a little further away from Chicago and, and about an hour west of La Crosse, it seems like the, the pressure isn't quite as much, so... We uh, will oft, often fish, uh, what's that called? Mystery Cave State Park. There's yeah, Canfield Creek. And yeah. mm -hmm. There's just so much water over there. It's unbelievable. On Labor Day, my brother, my brother uh, is a, heads up the women's cancer at Mayo Clinic. He's a breast cancer. He's an oncologist, pharmacogeneticist. And he and I will often go and just go down to Preston, and many of you know that, and over Labor Day, on Labor Day, on Labor Day, there was nobody on the creek. We, were, we didn't see a soul on Canfield Creek, which is a popular creek. And so we've really enjoyed the Wisconsin Driftless, and we've also really enjoyed the solitude of the Minnesota Driftless. And there are so many, many creeks over there. It's, it's almost impossible. Um, you can't fish them all. I mean, you just simply, there's just so much to fish over there. Yeah. In just a couple minutes, we're going to open it up. We'd love to find out what you love about fly fishing. We, we thought we might share 
just a couple of our favorite places uh, out west, and uh, you may be familiar with them. Uh, first one would be uh, the Yellowstone Below Tower. So well, we have fished here's that. Here's the drive-in. Yeah, yeah, here's the drive-in, yeah. yeah. Um, this is actually really funny. This picture that you see with the bison, <laughs> we were driving in, and and we, we were kind of up, not upset, because you should be just enjoying this. But when you're there, you're there to fish. So we couldn't get to uh, Tower Fall, the junction, as, fi as quickly as we wanted to. But what was really funny is that there was a photographer <laughs> that was in a little takeout. There was a little, like, side place for you to pull out. And these buffalo kept moving. And they finally got off the road. And when they did, they were like, really, a herd of stamping or herd of bison. Yeah. And they just descended upon this photographer. <laughs> and the look on his face was just priceless. You know, so he was scrambling to try to find his, uh, find his way. But one of our favorite places is below Tower Fall. So many of you have fished Yellowstone National Park. And if you know anything about that, there's these switchbacks that you have to go down to get to the river and and what you're thinking as you're going down these switchbacks at least what i'm thinking i got to go back up this later in the day <laughs> and so you get to the bottom and steve and i often go up somewhere between three and four miles so we don't typically don't start fishing right away we typically hike up maybe a mile or two before we start fishing yeah. partly because that stretch of river gets <clears throat> fished a lot but also some of the the better runs that are right along the uh, right along the trail tend not to get fished is, is this is actually right at the bottom of Tower Fall this picture right here but one of our favorite memories for at least for me is is a series of three memories that kind of conflate into one about it was about 10 years ago and it may have been on the same trip it may not have been on the same trip you know how memory is can't it's unreliable and so I'm an unreliable reporter about actually what actually happened but we were fishing along the Yellowstone, and Steve was out there, and I had stopped and pulled out my lunch, and I was watching him fish, just watching him hit this run. And I looked across uh, the river, and the river at that point, you can see how wide it is. I don't know, is it 20 yards, 30 yards? I looked yeah. across, it was just a, maybe a mile up from this, <coughs> from where we're at right here. It's kind of in this area. It was, yeah, it was, yeah. yeah, it was in that area right there. I looked across, and there was this and I said to Steve, hey, Steve, look at that coyote. <laughs> and he starts walking down. Steve goes, that's no coyote. That's a wolf. It was one of the Lamar Valley pack that was introduced to the Yellowstone. And it was bizarre because, of course, he couldn't cross or it couldn't cross the river. But it came down, lay right on the bank and literally was just right across the river and watched us for about 20 minutes. And then kind of got up and sauntered and went back up the ravine. So that was really a great memory. Another memory was about, I think, the next day or a day after we were coming back on the trail. And there were a herd of bison that were right in the middle of the trail. And I go, oh, Steve, they're, and I, was, I said, Steve, they're like cattle. Let's just keep walking. They'll get up and move. Well, that was true for all of them except one. All but one, one. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So this big bull, this big bull just kept laying there. So we keep walking up. So it went from like 50 yards to like 25 yards. It's hard to know. It probably wasn't that close, but I'm telling a good story here. So, but we got, we got, 
<laughs> it was close. Well, all of a sudden he gets oh, up. Oh, it was. It was within 20 yards. Yeah, it was, yeah, within, it was so within 20 yards. He gets yards, up, yeah. and instead of moving up the ravine, it starts moving toward us. I don't know if they have poor eyesight or what. So he just started, and it was a saunter. It wasn't like he was charging or anything. So Steve and I are looking at each other, and there's no place to go. You got the trail, got the bison. There's no place because the ravine is up, and the only thing you have is the, is the river. And you can't, you cannot wade the Yellowstone right there. You can if you want to dive. So we edged to the edge of the river, and we started going into the river because we thought, well, maybe we can curl up in the fetal position and, and flow downstream. We had our waders on at that point. <laughs> I don't know how close that bison came, but that wow. bison got really close, and then at some yeah. point it stopped kind of and then wagged its tail or switched its tail and then yeah. started up the ravine. So that was like, oh, my goodness. You know, it was one of those moments where you think, I don't think they're that dangerous, but they are known to charge. So, but yeah. we've had so many great days. We have a stretch there called Hopper Run that in late August or, or um, in the fall, is that Hopper Run right there? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You catch these just gorgeous cuts. They go anywhere from 10 inches to our biggest probably has been 18 inches. And the run is right along the, is right along the bank. And on the on the good years that we've had, I mean, we I mean, you just rip out like 40 fish within a couple hours. It's just unbelievable, and we've had days there where you catch one out of you know you're casting for four hours and you catch one. But that place in Tower Falls has a just, it's just a magical place. It's like our happy place, <clears throat> and yeah. it's just one of those places where you go back and you realize why you fly fish. For me, yeah. that's why I fly fish. Yep. Steve, what's one of your favorites? You know, one of my favorites is uh, fishing a, a creek called 16 Mile, uh, north of Bozeman, about an hour. Uh, not that far from where I used to live. Uh, it's on a ranch called the CA. And a couple years ago, a, a friend of ours who works for TU had, uh, was going to take some wounded warriors on that, and, and they couldn't go that day. So he said to the owner, hey, I've, I've got a couple friends. Could I bring them? And and he, he told them, he says, you, you might know one of them, Steve Matthewson, who used to live here. And, and, and this guy's wife said, oh, yeah, I used to work with his wife. So we get on this uh, uh, creek, and, and it's, it's such a cool uh, place, kind of the north end of the Gallatin Valley, pretty historic. And that's what I like, too. Uh, the, uh, you know, this is just looking out. There was an old trapper's uh, cabin, but it was along a railroad grade. And you might recognize that uh, railroad grade. They filmed uh, several scenes from a river runs through it uh, right there. And if, if you remember when the car was driven into the tunnel, uh, it, it looks like, well, they, they come up from, they drive up onto the tracks. Well, they, they didn't film that scene there. But as soon as they get on the tracks, they're going through this river or, or they're going through this uh, railroad grade. And, and it's, it's interesting, too, because uh, the Ringling brothers used to take their equipment uh, in the wintertime, they would run it up this uh, railroad grade to a little town that's now called Ringling, uh, Montana, and it, it got its name from the Ringling Brothers. But, uh, uh, you know, we fished uh, right under that uh, railroad trestle and, and did pretty well uh, that day. In fact, that was one of those magical days where the, the fish were just hitting hoppers, and it, it doesn't get fished that hard, so we... You know, I mean, we don't have many days like this, but we, we each caught over uh, 40 fish. And, and you know, later in the afternoon, it's like, I can't take it anymore. So yeah, I remember yeah. the line from Steve, which was, I am wrecked. Yeah. 
Yeah. So you really, you're just, you're fishing so hard all day long and you just get so exhausted. And this is really, I think this picture right here is at the end of the day. This is our friend yeah. Dave Cumberland. Mm -hmm. we, we fish these hopper patterns and you can kind of tell which one, uh, you know, we had, I had on for most of the, the afternoon. It kind of got uh, uh, torn up by the end of the day, but it was a, it was a ton of fun. And and we didn't run into any rattlesnakes, so that was a that was there a was bonus. one dead one on the way coming in. Yeah, remember that? that's, on the that's road? right. Another place we we've, we've really enjoyed fishing is, and this is very accessible. If if you get out to Yellowstone Park in the fall, uh, fish the Gardner River. It's just inside the north entrance, uh, uh, just as you're heading up towards Mammoth Hot Springs, and man, the the runners up from the uh, the Yellowstone River, and this is one morning when we fished it. In fact, there's Dave uh, up there, uh, and oh my goodness, uh, you know some years are are better than others. But uh, three years ago, yeah, three years ago, we we hit it just right, and then a couple years ago it was the worst year since 1992. That's not uh, what you want to hear when you uh, uh, when you go out there. So we just headed up to Tower Fall, but. Uh, using stone flies and and you catch a lot of nice fish got to be really careful uh, here's a here's a grizzly track uh, we always carry bear spray and thankfully we haven't had uh, an encounter with a bear but in fact that trip we were there the same week there was there was somebody that a uh, couple fishing the Lamar which isn't that far away and and they had a they were charged by a grizzly and their bear spray saved their life by the way, I'm I'm big on bear spray. We we both are, and a couple reasons for that. Uh, you know, one out of personal experience, I have a friend who used to bow hunt together, and and uh, one day he he you know, we planned to go bow hunting. I thought we were going somewhere safe, and then I realized, oh no, we're we're going to be north of Yellowstone Park, and we went up a drainage called Taylor Fork, which there are more grizzlies per capita than anywhere, and. So we, we hunted that morning. Uh, I think we had one bull going, but we couldn't get it in. Saw a lot of bear sign, no problem. Uh, the, the next year, he took a, a friend in, and, and they were uh, attacked by a bear. And his friend ended up, uh, who, who was a surgeon, ironically, and he ended up having uh, surgery for you know, a couple broken bones. And uh, uh, it was a scary situation, but bear spray you know, saved a life. And, uh, you know, some people think, man, I just want to carry a 44. Well, here's the problem. Even if it is legal, and that's a thing, you can't, uh, you, you can't have your 44, I, mean, you, I suppose, if you have concealed, concealed carry, but in the national park, you can't, you, know, you can't use a 44 Magnum. Even if you shoot a bear, uh, you know, with a 44 Magnum, it can keep coming. It doesn't put it down right away, where, where bear spray uh, usually just, stops them in their tracks and they leave the other thing if you have a, a bear on your friend or family member you, you can't be trying to shoot a bear with a 44 magnum uh, you know, you'll, you'll shoot and kill your, your friend and uh, my friend uh, he was also named Dave I mean he you know if he hadn't had his bear spray the bear was on his friend mauling him and so he, he got that off and so it's you know, statistically, it's not a, a huge issue, but there's encounters every year with, uh, you know, with fly fishers. And, of course, it's much different than it was back in the late 60s, the 70s, where 
uh, those bears, both in Glacier and Yellowstone, were garbage bears, and they were feeding on that, and they, they recognized people as potential sources of food. Well, that's, that's changed. Now, usually the attacks come because you run into a sow with cubs and, and, and surprise that bear, but, but always important to carry My bear story spray. about Taylor Fork, which has the highest per capita of grizzly, so I think it was about 10 years ago, my brother had an oncology conference at Big Sky Resort. So we said, hey, let's go, let's go fly fishing. I'll meet you out in Bozeman. And because Big Sky is just up 191 towards the park. And, and so uh, we get there and realize Obama was staying at Big Sky Resort. So we went out and we fished Taylor Fork. And I had no idea, of course, I should have done a little research about the grizzly problem. We didn't see any grizzly all day, but it's just perfect. We had one of, I had one of the best days in small creeks ever fishing hoppers and did some nymph fishing. It was just a really great day. So I came back, and so I tried to get back into Big Sky Resort. So we had we'd gotten in in the morning, and then the whole entourage uh, from the White House had gotten in a little bit later in the day. So when we got there, they had set up a security gate, and so you had to go through security. And so uh, we went through it, and I had, I, I had a stupid um, a jackknife in my pocket. So it tripped, obviously, the, you know, the security, and they patted me down. And the, I tell you what, those agents were not friendly. You know, they grilled me. What are you doing here? Why are you here? Why would you have a knife? And I'm like, I'm in yes, Montana. Yeah. I was fly fishing. Why wouldn't you have a knife? Why wouldn't yeah. I have a knife? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. He did not respond well to any no, comments I had. No, so anyway, right. that was my Taylor yeah. Fork story. Here's some fish we caught in the... Uh, uh, is that the gardener? Oh, yeah, in the gardener, uh, which is... Uh, it's, it's a stream. It's just a medium-sized uh, stream. But in the... You know, it's, it's usually 8 to 14 inches. But in the fall, you know, they, they get some runners. And we were catching them, you know, between 15 and 19 inches. Of course, Dave always has to catch... You know the bigger ones. So here's a couple that he took out of, uh, you know, out of that uh, that that area. We we were on the lower Madison or the Bear Trap and and walked in in the trail. And there's a lot of rattlesnakes along there. The first couple hundred yards. In fact, I, I think that day we might have we saw somebody you know killing one just like a hundred yards in front of us on the trail and. So we went in and fished, and I ran into a friend, and we talked, and, and on the way back out, we're walking, and we're on the trail, and I happened to glance down. I put my foot down this far from a, a rattlesnake that was coiled. Oh, no. And then I looked and realized that the head was missing, and then I realized our friend, Stan, uh, knew we were going to be coming out, and he had killed this <laughs> rattlesnake and, and left it right there. So I... <coughs> I'm still trying to figure out how we can, how get, we can get back even him. with yeah, him. He deserves that. Yeah, some of the best times I've had with my sons have been uh, uh, fly fishing. I, I took my, never forget, I took my youngest son uh, one, uh, uh, one fall. It was, uh, it was like the s first weekend of rifle season you know, for deer, and it was a warm day. I said, there's, there's no way that, you know, that, I'm not going to go hunting. I don't want to get something down in, you know, 50-degree weather. So we went out to the bear trap, the lower Madison, and uh, I, I said, you know, there sometimes there's some browns that are running in here. So, uh, I, you know, 
uh, be ready. So I handed him a rod, had it all rigged up. So he makes his first cast, and I'm tying my fly, and he goes, Dad, I got a snag. I think, are you kidding me? So I walk over, I took his rod and a couple tugs, and I felt something on I said, Luke, you got a fish on. So I gave him, and, and he fought this fish for a while, and, and I could see it, and I got the net, and it was this big brown. I said, all right, you got to be really careful, and I'm coaching him. Well, then I got in the way, and the thing wrapped, ran around me and snapped off, and I'll never forget the look on his face. He was so angry. There was a, there was a tear coming down, but he wouldn't look at me, and he's like, I don't know, what was he, 11? And I said, Luke, don't worry, you'll probably catch another one thinking, there's no way, you know, I've ruined it. <laughs> so I said, here, take my rod, I'll, you know, I'll re-rig yours. Next cast, he, he caught another one. He caught like five that, you know, that day that were all 18 to 20 inch, great big old browns. And, and we'll, we'll never forget that day. You know, even now we, he's 25 and we talk about that and we, we laugh about it and, and, and with my other son, you know, we have days like that, too, where, where we go back and you think, yeah, it's, you're right. It's with the people that, that you share it with. I, I think for me, something else that, that you've all alluded to is, is it, it's a way to, to get out into nature and to interact with nature. You know, it's one thing to stand at, at an overlook and see something beautiful, but to, to enter into it, and, and I know some people do that by by mountain biking, some do it maybe by skiing, a lot of different ways you can do it. I, I, I love to hunt, you know, to bow hunt, and, but uh, there, there's just something about standing, uh, you know, in, in a river, and I always remember once in the, uh, the East Gallatin River was within sight of one of the houses that, that we, we lived in, a house that we built. I could look down and see the East Gallatin, and, and, and also realize, I had read the journals, I knew that that William Clark and Sacagawea walked right by that river on their way, you know, from the Three Forks uh, back to uh, a rendezvous point. They wanted to explore the Yellowstone, and, and, and I'd go down there and, and fish, and I'll never forget one day just down and standing in that river, and, and, and the snow's coming down, and the rainbows were actually, uh, you know, rising for uh, blueing olives that day, and, and it was just fantastic but I'll never forget the snow and we've had that before too on the Madison and it's just a it's just a fantastic sport I'm, I'm so thankful for it there's you know there, there's art to it there, there's grace there there's skill there's there's the outdoors there's beauty there's camaraderie uh, it, it's a great thing and that's really why we do the podcast all right it's time for great stuff from our listeners this is our friend David, who comments occasionally on our podcast, and this is his uh, comment on our podcast about decisions that make or break your fly fishing day. Uh, this is what David said. He said, you mentioned fly fishing during snowfall. To me, fly fishing during a snowstorm, especially those big fluffy snowflake types of snowfalls, is the most beautiful time to be on the stream. First off, most times you have the stream to yourselves. Secondly, it's just downright peaceful. Third, some of my largest trout I've ever caught uh, were during a snowfall. As a fly fisher, what more can you ask for? Beautiful, solitude, peacefulness, and large trout. Just remember to bring a thermos of hot cocoa and warm clothing and enjoy. Oh, man, <laughs> I am there. Oh, yes. Oh, I know. We've had some times like that. I, I just love it. The snow's coming down and... 
and uh, you know, hits the river. Sometimes you can hardly see your fly, but fish are rising, and oh man, it, it is. It's a fantastic, fantastic time. I have to say too, David actually posted this to our site on Christmas Day. So oh, that's uh, great. Yeah, so he was thinking about. Uh, yeah, the stand, true meaning of Christmas. That's right, standing in a stream <laughs> uh, with the snow falling, catching those big oh, trout. Gosh. Oh, that's a uh, man. I, makes me eager to get out and fish in the snow again. We should do an episode on great times to fish. I think we've done stuff on fishing in crowded conditions, but anytime it's a little bit cold, there's a little bit of weather, the crowd just thins out. Oh, it really does. Really does. And uh, we're good with that. Yeah, we're we? totally good with that. Yep. <laughs> well, that's going to do it for today. What do you love about fly fishing? You can respond by commenting on this podcast link at twoguysinariver.com. Tell us why you love fly fishing. And thank you for referring our podcast to your TU chapter, Fly Fishing Club, your friends. Be sure to forward on all the content from our site, different links, or subscribe actually to our email alerts that we send out each week. We also would love to hear your ideas for podcast episodes. Reach out to us on Instagram or just email us at Steve Dave at twoguysinariver.com. One more thing, be sure to pick up our book, the, the Fly Fisher's Book of Lists. Life is short, catch more fish. You can find that at Amazon. Well, thanks again for listening. I'm Steve Mathewson. And I'm Dave Getz. Until next time, we are Two Guys in a River. For the love of fly fishing. <laughs>